Hello and welcome to the Social Market Foundation podcast with me, James Kirkup, bringing you news, views and expertise from Britain's leading centrist think tank. Today's podcast is part of our Ask the Expert series, in conjunction with the Economic and Social Research Council, where we bring publicly funded academics and experts to Westminster and use their learning to enrich the policy-making conversation. Today's guest is Anne John, Professor of Psychiatry and Public Health at the University of Swansea. We're going to be talking about mental health in men and boys. So, Anne, we're here particularly to talk about men and boys and, and mental health. Talk us through the, the general fact. What, what do we know about men and boys' mental health? So we know that they're less likely to seek help. So if they have anxiety and depression, only one in seven will seek help for it. And the way that manifests itself is that if we were, say, looking at how many people go to hospital for mental health problems, we don't see men in the same way. And if they're not accessing help, it means they're sitting with these issues and they're much more likely to become chronic. In terms of ultimate outcomes, that has some pretty stark and very negative results, doesn't it? So I think one of the places where you see it present itself the most is that men are three times more likely to take their own life than women. And, you know, there's always a very complex set of reasons why someone may take their own life. But it is an expression of acute distress. And I think that shows that we should be able to intervene early. And within that wider group of men, particular men are, are, are particularly exposed to risk here, aren't they? So men from more socioeconomically deprived areas, so living in poverty, are 10 times more likely to take their own lives than people in more affluent areas. The other sorts of risks that can make things worse are alcohol and substance misuse problems, relationship breakdown, debt. We see uh, suicide rates rise in times of economic downturns. And that's thought to be linked very much so to unemployment. The men seem to be impacted more by job loss and redundancy than women. I think when you look at all those factors, so those like real hard markers of men not getting the help that they need, it makes it really important that we start trying to design and deliver services that they can access. Just on, on that point about a strong relationship between economic status, employment and, and suicide among men than women, does that tell us something about the some of the conditions that make it less likely that men will seek help? This is the stigma point, I suppose. I'm, I'm going to start speculating wildly here. But is that down to social stereotypes and sort of assigned social role? I'm, I'm asking because I mean I, I grew up in you know, in the north, northeast of England, a fairly traditional sort of place where men definitely didn't talk about this stuff and men equally absolute bedrock belief the job of a man is to go out and work and provide for the family and so I'm just what you've talked about is that essentially related to that the strength of the breadwinner role do you think I think you're completely right so I think having a mental illness is stigmatizing you know I think things have improved slightly but people are still very much labeled and assumptions Mm. made about them So we don't look at mental health in the same way as we look at physical health. People see it as a weakness. So men also have, you know, historically we've got those ideas that men need to be strong. They need to be breadwinner. They need to not be tired. When people are depressed, things like libido and function and tiredness come into play. And all those things make men not feel like they're being men. 
And so I think it's that stigma. So I do think the younger generations are more emotionally intelligent. A lot of them, not all of them. And yet as a society, we call them snowflakes. So, so within society still, <laughs> yeah. there's all sorts of mixed messages about being sensitive and self-aware about mental health issues. And so to get men to come and talk about those things, at the moment, we're not delivering mm. services that they engage with. They'd much rather pitch up in crisis to an emergency yes. department. You mentioned young people. Now, in your research, education figures quite heavily, doesn't it? There's some evidence there that you've collected that suggests that education may help us to identify the people who might be in most need or are at greatest risk of problems in this area. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So education is important in two ways. It gives people opportunities and problem-solving skills. So we did a big study where we linked how many GCSEs you got or how much people were excluded from school to whether they had a diagnosis in their primary care records, all done anonymously and protecting their privacy. And what we found was that young people who self-harmed or who had anxiety and depression, their attainment was lower. Hmm. And we also found, and it was lower in, in boys and girls, but particularly for boys. And then in terms of exclusion, boys who had self-harmed or had anxiety and depression had much higher levels of exclusion. Now, that operates in lots of ways. Mm. So it's opportunities, it's job security, but it's also about isolation. If kids aren't in school... They're on their own. Uh, yeah, I can think of sort of three different potential in interactions there whereby mental health and educational attainment relate to one another. There's the question of whether or not if you've got a mental underlying mental health condition or problem, that's going to make it harder to get get the better results. One thing, if, if you do end up with lower results, you are likely to end up without access to economic wherewithal to social resource, which is likely to encourage poor mental health. But also there's the environmental question of we know that kids who get US GCSEs with the lowest grades are most likely to come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, come from the sort of households where you are likely to see a greater prevalence of mental health conditions. So I mean how how do you unpick that? How far how far is it possible to go in unpicking what's what's causing what and what's what's a factor of what? So I think as a researcher I'm very interested in unpicking all that. Is it causal? Mm. Is it not? Which direction does it go in? But I think for people, that's less important. Yeah. In one of the studies we did, young people's educational attainment starts dropping in primary school if they are going to have a diagnosis of depression. That means that we can find those kids when they're yeah. really young and give them extra support. And so I think if we try and understand all the interactions, it's important because you might find different ways of making a difference. Yeah. Dara, from, from a policymaker perspective, yeah. let's just the, get the on question with I've asked is irrelevant. It doesn't matter what's causing what. What's important is you know, what are the underlying facts about these people which allow us to identify them earlier than we do at the moment and help earlier, is that? Yeah. yeah. Broadly speaking, the system of mental health services, educational, all the rest, how well are we doing in identifying and intervening earlier in, in these cases, particularly with boys, young men? So there's this concept called the inverse care law. And what that means is that uh, people in the most need are the least likely to get services. And we see that over and over again in mental health. And if they're not in services, then they're not helping design what services are. So people like us, 
we're very good at going and asking for what we want and the people that we're asking speak the same language as us. For other people, it can be very difficult. And so I think we really need to think about if you're in quite an insecure job, it's going to be very difficult to go to the GP. You may not have transport. It's going to be very difficult to attend 12 talking therapy sessions. For lots of people with mental health problems, they're not up at 8.30 to make that GP appointment. And if you think about the stigma, they don't want to attend a mental health appointment. And so I think we can think much more smartly about how we deliver and design our services so that they're more accessible to men. So that's that's the picture of where we are now, essentially. A big and very serious for many people problem, services that aren't addressing it very well or adapting very well to meet the needs of the people concerned takes us on to the next question, what, what we can actually do about this? What are the appropriate responses? So I think there are some really important things we can do. So we need to raise awareness and tackle stigma. I think we've come a long way. We have to think about the language we use mm. in relation to, to mental health. So things like, so over Brexit, people using like it's a national intentional act of self-harm. That sort of language is stigmatising. Those photos of young people with their heads in their hands. That's not what people with mental health problems look like. You're talking about, this was the, I will confess some guilt here as a former journalist. Now, talk you through the process. When you are you're a journalist putting together a newspaper or a website and you're writing about or covering mental health, you go looking for pictures because we like to have pictures to illustrate content because people, people are visual as well as everything else. And so you write, right, we're doing mental health. What are we going to do? You reach in, into the stock image library and you find pictures of someone looking really sad with a head in the hand. Or you might find a picture of a girl's arm with, with cuts on it. Or And you're right, it's a very clear visual language that we use that presents a very clear idea of mental health issues. But it's not the most helpful way of describing the issue, is it? So I think it means that people are looking for people to look like that and people don't look like that. Mental health problems are so common. Most people look like you and me as they're going through their lives experiencing these illnesses. I think the second issue is, is sometimes people with mental health problems are angry. And so it stops us framing how these illnesses present. And then I guess for me as well, there's definitely something about, so all the things we have about talking, yes. it's good to talk. Yes. It is good to talk. There's no doubt. But I think sometimes we present it like it'll just be one conversation. No, actually, it's going to be several conversations. Or even a sort of fundamental shift in your way of being and and acting, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, again, I, back to my my upbringing. As I'm from the north. We we don't talk about anything ever. <laughs> I mean, it's just just nothing. Just the odd grunt now and again. Do you talk about feelings, God? No, never do that. But I'm it's not particularly unusual for me for me to say that. That sort of change. I mean, how far can you as a as a practitioner, as a clinician, go with that? Doctors alone can't solve our sort of way of way of being and thinking about this, can you? I think it involves policymakers, it involves the press, it in involves practitioners, but practitioners in a very broad sense of the word. Mm. So if you work in the YMCA, if you work in a pub, if you come into contact with people who may be vulnerable, 
I would say that it's good to talk. It's not so much, it doesn't have to be a very intense, deep and meaningful conversation where you solve everyone's problems in that one moment. Because, yeah, because if you essentially put a, put a big sign and say, right now, we're all going to sit down and talk about our feelings till everything's better, then you, you'll scare a lot of people. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go near that personally. <laughs> it's much more about having non-judgmental hmm. conversations. So I think one of the big differences in the way we as a society view mental health problems and physical health problems is that we see physical health problems as they happen to you. You are a victim. Whereas we see mental health problems as sort of, you know, snap out type things. So it's, there needs to be a real step change in how we think about these things. Almost Im- implicit blame there, isn't there? Yes. Because if, you know, if, if my body goes wrong, if some condition developed, by and large, that's regarded as bad luck or misfortune or one of those things. If my mind goes wrong, that's somehow something over which I'm seen to have had control or that I, that I could fix, even though actually minds don't work like that, do they? No. And I think sometimes the concept of resilience feeds into that Mm. because it's almost you're not being resilient enough. (laughs) So I think there's something about the way we construct mental illness that that feeds into why people feel uncomfortable with it and talking about it. But that's where we're at brings back that, that national conversation, that the language that we use about this. As you say, in the political conversation, it's madness, suicide, insane. Crazy. I mean, you, there's still sort of headline words and they're still, they're still thrown around. I mean, should we ultimately be looking to get to the point where when we want to say that something is a bad idea that will deliver negative results, we really, really, really shouldn't, be, shouldn't say that's mad, that's a mad thing to do, that's crazy. Can we ever aspire to eliminate that from language altogether? So I think this is a complex thing. So things that people say in everyday language, lots of people go, that's political correctness. And I'm putting this in inverted commas, gone mad. Yes. However, I think when you highlight where some of these phrases come from, so the one that springs to mind is commit suicide. Mm. Now, people use that in everyday language. I hear it all the time. But in actual fact, that's strongly linked to when taking your own life was a crime. And criminal behaviour is stigmatised. The only other time we use the word commit as a verb, well, in that sense, to commit an act, commit yourself to someone. But in that way, when I commit an act, generally, almost all usage is you're committing an illegal act, commit a crime, commit an offence. Suicide was once upon a time an offence. And so I think once someone points Hmm. that out to you, why wouldn't you want to change your language? But also being kind to yourself, because, you know, it'll take a bit of time. For a while, you're, you're sort of stopping yourself mid-sentence. But I think we should try and be really mindful of the language that we use. Just out of curiosity, I'm now puzzling over this as we talk. What's a better way of phrasing it? Would it be better to say to carry out an act of suicide? I often say take their own life. Straightforward, that word. Now, moving away from the question of narrative and, and conversation, to bring it back to, to service design a little, because you, you said earlier on that at the moment, the way we design and provide services really isn't working for particularly men and boys because they just they won't turn up to use mental health services as they're currently constituted. Are there examples of, of good reform, good practice, where you can change things to actually to design services that get around the stigma and the, the reticence point? So I think there are lots of great innovative work going on in in the NHS and in the community to address these issues. 
but I, I guess where I would take that further is often when innovations happen, they're led by either an individual or a certain group of people coming together. And I think what we need to happen is for those people to make sure they evaluate what they're doing. Because it's only if they evaluate what they're doing. So we know to get research into practice can take about 17 years. Seven, 17, one seven. One seven. So yeah, just to, to think that through, that is... You know, someone like you going out and you know, doing the job that we, we've all asked you to do, and which is to find out what is going on in the world, what works, what, what can be done to make services better for people who really need it. You might come up with something which says, right, this is, this is my finding, before you actually see that being put into practice by the NHS or someone else, 17 years. It's an average. <laughs> so what that means is, is that sometimes it takes longer than that. Mm. And sometimes it's faster. And when it's faster, it's usually because it's being driven by other reasons. A good example of that is that there was a study that found that albumin might be doing damage. Yes. But it's albumin's expensive. Disappeared off the shelves in emergency departments virtually overnight. So there are often drivers that can make a change. But it is hard to get research into practice. And often when you have a perfect trial, by the time that intervention hits the streets, as it were, it's very different to what the evidence is. We need to take responsibility for what, in, in research terms, we call fidelity to what we found, but also that all those bits of innovative practice that are happening Put that new knowledge out there. Mm. There are, sort of, I guess, two things to talk about here. One is uh, there are some structural system questions about particularly the NHS, but then there's the wider political questions. On, on the structural point, I mean, isn't this one of the sort of peculiarities of a... We have a national health service. Everyone knows the initial. Everyone knows the name national health service. We don't actually have a national health service, do we? We have a lot of locally empowered autonomous organisations that have quite seriously varying degrees of adoption, uptake and practice. There is no single national health service. There's lots of organisations doing lots of different things, which presumably can can contribute to a slower uptake of innovation. When you've got a big system like the NHS, this is the million dollar question, isn't it? Because you need to have the flexibility for local innovation and practice. However, you also need to not have that sort of what we used to call postcode prescribing or delivery of interventions, which is why you have standards of care and guidance, like, like from NICE. I think part of the loss of some of the innovative services that are delivered is that people are so busy delivering them that they don't evaluate them. Mm. So I think both are important. That sort of national standard and local innovation. You need some flexibility in the system. But ultimately, we're spending public money. So we need to make sure we're doing the best we can with that. And that involves people being very clear about the choices that they're making. What we just described there, that, that is a common feature of the NHS and healthcare across the board, physical and mental. But is this a problem of slow uptake of innovation, absorption of research and evidence? Is that more of a problem on the mental health side than physical medicine, do you think? Well, I guess where it would be a problem is that historically, research and services have been chronically underfunded Mm. in mental health because there's no parity of esteem. And, you know, when you look at the figures, it was something like a report 
came out last year that if we try to meet in mental health services the unmet need that exists in society for children and young people, we'd need 150,000 new clinically trained staff. Quite a lot. So my answer to your question is potentially yes, but because it's such a stretched, underfunded system and because we haven't been funding research to the same level that we fund it in cancer and heart disease. MQ, which is the mental health research charity, put out a report a couple of months ago that put some figures around that. And it's stark. So I think when when systems have been underfunded in that way, they're not flexible anymore. So the answer is yes, but I think that's why. Yes, yes. There is the question of if the root cause is underfunding and neglect, this goes back to that parity question, doesn't it? Essentially, both a a system and a society that still does not give equal treatment, equal equal importance to mental health as as to physical health. Yes, I think things are changing. Mm. So those of us who've worked in the field for longer, I think the conversations are happening much more than they did before but there's a long way to go things like this take a long time to change and we can raise all the awareness in the world but we have to fund the services to meet it otherwise we're leaving people stuck yeah ultimately that takes us back to people we talk about a lot in in these podcast politicians they have to make the decision that this is something to which they will assign greater resources. And ultimately, I suppose they have to do that. They'll do that when they reach the point of thinking that the people they work for, voters, the electorate, want them to do that. So an ongoing process of education, awareness raising. I must talk more about politics than politics than your research there, but I mean, quite a long journey ahead then. Yes, but I think we've made amazing progress in the last few years. Good. That's, that's a really cheery and optimistic note to end on. Uh, we don't often get to this point. I think at that point we'll, uh, we'll call things to a halt and say thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all from us. Thank you to Anne John. Thank you to the Economic and Social Research Council for making this podcast possible. Thank you to our producer, Barbara Lambert, for making this podcast. And thank you for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>